Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you created humanity to know you and to be in relationship with you. We pray that we may ever be mindful of this and where we need to repent, help us to repent. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Please be seated. If I got up here, or perhaps maybe more appropriately, if we were sitting around a campfire, and I started to say something along the lines of, once upon a time, you would all know exactly what was about to follow. What would be about to follow would be a fairy tale, in which there would probably be a damsel in distress and some heroic young man who goes out to save her from some evil. Of course, this story would hopefully delight you, but also tell a moral tale of how courage and a little bit of goodness can overcome evil. This morning, our Old Testament lesson started with the words, these are the generations, or generations, rather. And this little phrase, these are the generations, act in Genesis in the same way as, for example, once upon a time are to act. It tells the reader or the hearer, depending on how this is going, what is about to follow. If you read Genesis carefully, you'll realize every now and again this phrase pops up. These are the generations, in this case, of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the days the Lord God made the earth and the heaven. In other cases, it's the generations of Abraham or others. But throughout the book of Genesis, we get these sections started with this little phrase, and we know, all right, we're about to get an explanation of yet another thing. So in this case, we're starting off with the explanation of the world and humanity's place in it. The world and how it was created, and more specifically, why it was created and what each person was designed for. So as we open up in this passage, we see the world very young. There's not a lot of green going on because no one has cultivated the earth, nor have plants grown. And this is interesting, of course, because other than when we get into the Garden of Eden, we learn something. When, when God created, for example, the redwood, I was thinking about the redwoods today because they're pretty cool and big. When God created the redwood, he didn't just go poof, and there was a giant redwood tree growing on the coast of California. No, he, he made the little sapling, is what we learned this morning, and it grew slowly until it became this giant tree that are really cool. If you haven't gone to see them and you can deal with going to California, I highly recommend going to see them. <clears throat> But the trees took time to grow up, and and nothing was cultivated. It, it, It grew slowly over time. And as we dive in, perhaps you've heard, well, there are two creation stories going on here. There's the first one, which we talked about last week, and then we get the second creation story. And that's not really what's going on here. I think to start with, we get we get a poem. Kind of like if you pick up a novel and there's a little poem at the beginning of each chapter, we get a poem to start. Genesis, to introduce us to what the book is about. It's about the beginning of everything. But then Moses wants us to understand specifically why humanity is created. So he zooms in 
on that. And he starts to tell the story of humanity's creation. And he tells it more in prose, although there's a little poem at the beginning. The rest of this is basically prose throughout, throughout chapter 2, telling the reason why you are here. <clears throat> and of course, this section of These Are the Generations doesn't end with chapter 2. Chapter 3 tells another part, very important part of the story, which we'll talk about next week. And then chapter 4 tells us, well, what does this look like, having what happened in chapter 3, which I think most of you know what happens in chapter 3, but you'll have to wait till next week when we talk about it. <clears throat> but chapter 2 tells us the why. Who were we supposed to be? Who were we created to be? And this is the question that's at the forefront of our minds as we read Genesis 2. And we begin, man is formed out of the earth. We were studying, we're doing a staff Bible study and we go through the passage for the week and somebody rightly noted in this Bible study that, that this should remind us, the fact that we were created from the most simplest of substance should remind us to be humble. But there's something else going on here as well, is that we share the most basic building blocks with everything else on the earth. Basically what biology tells us that we are created with all these basic building blocks just like the squirrels and all of that are created with. Likewise, we are created. But something sets us apart. As we go on, we learn that, that the animals are also created out of the substance, out of the ground, out of the dust. These words can be interchanged and it's, it's the same word in the passage. But Something sets us apart. We notice when, when the, the animals, when he talks about the creation of the animals, that he doesn't do something when they're made. And that's the fact that God breathes life into humanity. God breathes life into human beings. In other words, he sent the spirit down and animated Adam and gave him a spirit of his own. And likewise, we have a spirit. Of course, We've been ripped apart from God in sin. And so we don't quite have that Holy Spirit outside of Christ. That's the renewal part of Christ. But God still breathes life into each person and makes us alive. And that's pretty amazing. And then as we read on, he puts man into this place called Eden, this garden in Eden. And sometimes, you know, you read these things like, well, explorer so-and-so spent... 20 years looking for Eden, but he couldn't find it. And that's not why we get this description of where Eden is. There are a few really important reasons why we have the description, but it's not so that if you're bored, you can go look for it, or if you have an obscene amount of money. That's, that's not why we get that description. First and foremost, when we get these really detailed descriptions in Scripture, whoever the author is, whether it be Moses or one of the Gospel writers, they're trying to tell us this is real. So by getting this really just detailed description of Eden, it's this is a real place. It really existed. And this is where it was. It's not meant to be understood allegorically, but that it's real. The second part of this description tells us that in that place, everything was provided for, for this man. He had everything that he needed. He didn't need to worry about food or anything else. But finally, the thing that we tend to miss the most when we read this 
is that there's a headwater there. Several rivers go flowing out, four rivers to be exact, if we want to be exact. Four rivers go flowing out of this place. We think, well, that's nice. I wonder what that means. But where do rivers start? Somebody in Bible study kind of picked a, picked a bone with me on this one, but I think they were being punchy. But rivers almost always start on mountains or hilltops. Rivers don't flow up uphill. They flow downhill. And so if you have four rivers starting in one place, it tells us that it's a high place. Now something else happens on high places, both within Judaism and Christianity and pagan religions, and that's that we like to put our places of worship on a high place. In Judaism, of course, the temple was placed on the Temple Mount. In, in paganism, often you go into like Greece, and that, that's where like the, the blanking on what it's called, the Agropolis, is that right? There, there we go. Somebody said it right. It wasn't me. Um, right, are placed on this high place. And, and for whatever reason, we as humanity have always put our places of worship high up. Uh, if you go into Europe, European cities and you can imagine them without the skyscrapers and stuff, the steeple was the high point of the town. And so the, the other thing that's going on here is that Moses is telling us that the Garden of Eden was a place of communion with God. It was a high place where man was to commune with God. Now, thinking outside of the box a little bit, I, I don't know how many of you have ever heard of the Septuagint. I'm sure some of you have. But it's the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, they went through and translated it as best they could. Sometimes they did a really great job. Other times they're off doing something else. There are books that are substantially shorter for some reason. Maybe we don't entirely know why. Um, uh, the, the classic example of this is Job is like half the length of the book of Job. And I, I think the translator just was like tired of translating the, the conversation between Job and his friend. So I'm not sure I can entirely blame him on that one. But no, Job is all inspired, just so we're clear. But the Septuagint was a really important document. It was the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And oftentimes that's what Christ and his disciples are pulling from. So if you go through and you read something that's clearly an Old Testament, trend, Old Testament quotation, and you flip back in your Bible to that quotation and it's a little different, that's because they were pulling from the, the Septuagint copy and not the Masoretic or the Hebrew copy. So why am I telling you this random story that seems like it's off in left field? But it's because of how the Septuagint translated the word garden. And it's really important. They translated it paradiso which it does not take a Greek scholar to guess what that might mean. It means paradise. And now where do, we, where do we hear about paradise in scripture? On the cross with the thief. Remember that the two thieves are going back and forth, and one thief is like, ha ha, you're getting crucified, and the other one's like, you know this, and the guy doesn't deserve it, right? And so that one, he, Jesus promises, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's the same word. And so what Jesus is saying here is today, because you have repented of the wickedness that you did on earth, you will be redeemed to what was lost in the fall. You will be redeemed to a relationship with God. You'll be brought back into this paradise, into this garden, into this high place 
where you live with God perfectly. And that is the promise of repentance. If you've forgotten the gospel, you don't know the gospel, that is central to what we believe. That if you repent of your sins and trust in Christ, you will be restored to what was lost in the fall. You will be restored to a relationship with God. That, my friends, is the good news. Now we hear of this time in the garden, and it's the good life, but it's not this habitual fagation. We often think of like, well, if I work really hard, I'll get to retire and have a nice retirement and not do anything, or, or which I don't think I know any retired people that actually don't do anything, but that's neither here nor there. <clears throat> or you think, well, I'm going to work really hard so I can go on a long vacation. But that's not the good life as described here or described in Scripture. But it is right ordered work with appropriate rest in Christ. Adam is told to work this land, to continue to make the garden a beautiful place, to continue to cultivate it, and he can enjoy all the fruit that is there except one. And we get to that prohibition, and we kind of get a little troubled, don't we? Like, well, why, why would God put this tree in the middle that Adam's not allowed to eat from? And it's a good question, and that's a good question to ask. The first part of it is that this prohibition is the first covenant in Scripture. It's a covenant between Adam and God that says, this is what it looks like to live in relationship with me. But what is the point of that covenant? The point isn't just a, this is a sort of petty test to see, like, well, let's see if I can trip up Adam. That's not, that's not what's going on here but it's to show where knowledge is to come from. Will you get your knowledge on your own power? Will you learn what is good and evil because you can do it? Or will you learn what is good and evil by trusting and depending upon God? Do we learn what is good and evil from the world? Do we learn what is good and evil from our own rationality? Or do we learn it from God? Do we learn it by dwelling in him, by reading his word, by marking it, learning it, and inwardly digesting it? That is ultimately the big question in this covenant with God and man. Will you depend upon me fully, not only for your provision, but for knowing what is good and evil? Or will you go after good and evil on your own so that you can say, I taught myself good and evil? And now we get into the classic. It is not good for man to be alone. And this tells us two things. Of course, at the very center of it, biblical marriage between man and woman is good. It wasn't good that Adam was alone, and so that's why he needed a companion. He needed a companion because marriage is good. But it also tells us something a little more basic. It tells us that community, as we share together, is also good. We aren't created to be these sort of monks that live off on our own or, um, or uh, the word is gone, sorry. The, the people that go hermits, there we go. We aren't created to be hermits that go off into the woods and never see anybody. That's not what God created us for. God created us to be together. And we need that to grow and encourage and love one another to grow in knowing God. And so God sets out 
to help Adam find a helper. <clears throat> and we read about the animals, and like we just talked about, that word he created them out of the ground is actually the same word as the dust. I don't know why you kind of miss that. But so, so the animals are all, all created out of the same substance as man is. And then the animals kind of cross, and we miss what's going on here because it's just hard to, to imagine. The animals kind of just cross in front of Adam, and he names them one by one by one. And the naming is really an interesting thing, right? Naming tells us it, you have authority. So we give parents authority to name their children. A, a scientist discovers a new planet, he gets to name it. Or a scientist discovers a new plant, and he gets to give it a kind of fun Latin-y sounding name, or maybe not, depending on how that scientist is feeling. Um, when hippies became scientists, they started naming things like quirk, quirks. There are quirks out there. It's a fun fact for you that you probably didn't need to know this morning. <clears throat> but naming also tells us another thing. I don't know how many of you heard about that, that horrible story back, I think it, started, it was in the 70s, and they finally resolved it. But there was this girl called Little Miss Nobody. Did, did you all hear about that? But they found this girl dead off, off in, I think, down, down um, near Congress or something like that, or in between here and Congress. And I think they were really intentional when they called her Little Miss Nobody because they wanted to kind of pull people's heartstrings. But part of the tragedy is they didn't know that girl's name until this year. They didn't know who she was. And in a sense, the, the reason it was so heartbreaking is not knowing that little girl's name almost felt like she didn't matter, right? So to somebody, she didn't matter. They, they discarded this poor child. But by giving something a name, whether it's the fact that you and I have names, and I can tell you almost all of your names, or the fact that these animals were given names, it shows us that they matter. Because God created them, and God let Adam name them. So they were important enough to name. But, as we learn, out of those animals, none of them was a suitable helper. They mattered. They were good. They were beautiful. Even a dog, yes, even the dog that passed by wasn't a suitable helper, even though he was wonderful and probably Adam's best friend, if, if my experience tells me anything. <clears throat> but my dog, nor Adam's dog, if he had one, was a suitable helper. He needed somebody to compliment him, somebody that would help him and work with him and help him to walk with God. And so God makes woman out of Adam's side. And so it tells us several things, so many important things about the creation of woman. First, he came, she came out of him, and they were designed to live in harmony. They were designed to live side by side, to complement each other, to work together to cultivate this land to the glory of God. They were designed to be one flesh, a single unit. They were designed to live in unity. And this is what we are designed to do. First and foremost, designed to live at unity with our spouses if we are blessed to be married. But designed to be at unity with our neighbors and our Christian community. And so we are called to this unity. And as we come to the end, we're starting to see something. We're starting to see why humanity was created. 
He endues humanity with life by giving us the Spirit. And true life comes when you are baptized in the Spirit and coming to Christ. When you come to Christ, you get the Holy Spirit and life is renewed within you. He places him in this good garden and gives him good work. He provides food for man and his wife. And he provides a helper in the form of a wife. But then the passage closes with something that might make us a little uncomfortable. It closes with, and man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. As we think about these things that God has done for humanity, that God did for humanity, and more specifically, why he was created, this little phrase actually summarizes it really well, as though, even though it might make us a little uncomfortable. To be naked, even in our culture, is to share total vulnerability. And so, not only were they totally and perfectly vulnerable with each other, the more important part is they were vulnerable with God. They were totally vulnerable with God. And ultimately, if we want to summarize this first part of Genesis... It is that man and woman, you and I, were created for one specific thing. We were created by God to enjoy intimacy with him. If you learn nothing else today, tune in right now and understand that you were created to have intimacy and vulnerability with God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost.